0: Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and my career as a radio presenter, with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul so if you've just landed with us, make sure you check out Stuart D. Bill from Episode 1 and Mark Baxter, otherwise known as Bax, from Episode 2. Both massive of fans from The Jam to The Style Council to now. And I was thinking about one thing that Bax was talking about and how Paul had asked him when they first met what he was listening to, what he was reading and what he was watching. And being honest, I was a bit worried about that. And let me tell you why. So I had two boys. Henry, who's six, and Freddie, who's nearly four. So what I'm listening to is Frozen and Moana. What I'm reading is the works of Julia Donaldson, the likes of The Gruffalo. And what I'm watching is mainly Paw Patrol and Fireman Sam. But given that Paul also has young kids, I'm hoping that'll be okay. So here we are at episode 3 and a very special guest the singer and songwriter Russell Hastings otherwise known as the lead singer in the band From The Jam. He's been performing with legendary Jam bassist Bruce Foxton since 2007 when Russell and the Jam drummer Rick Buckler were touring with The Gift. Russell has been the only frontman to work with both Rick and Bruce since Paul Weller split The Jam in 1982 and has been earning respect from fans across the world as both a brilliant frontman and an incredible guitar player. As a genuine jam fan, his passion and understanding of the history is second to none, and he's toured the world playing to packed houses of jam fans, otherwise known as the Jam Army, for years. On their own albums, Russell and Bruce have recorded at Barn Studios, otherwise known as Paul Weller HQ, and Paul has even featured on the last couple of albums too. So it's safe to say they're good mates. So let's get into it. Hi, Russell. All right, mate. Yeah, you? Where in the world do we find you?
1: Uh, I'm on a boat in
0: uh, Chichester.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm in my boat. Yeah, I've come down to my boat. It's a cave, really. So I've come down here. I had some work to do in the bathroom. So I thought, well, let's come down and we'll do this down here as well, because I've got Wi-Fi down here. And I write songs here. I... um, you know, I come and escape here and luckily I live on the beach anyway, but I, I, I'm very close to a marina. So I come here and uh, and then, I, you know, I escape across into the Solent most of the time.
0: For the purposes of this podcast, this is audio. Uh, are people imagining a Roman Abramovich style vessel or is it kind of a houseboat or what, time of, what type of boat <laughs> is it? <laughs>
1: Uh, funny, yeah. Stuart Pearce came down a little while ago. Piercy, uh, you know, f- as in football. Piercy and uh, Psycho, yeah, Psycho. Yeah, yeah, I'm friends with Stuart and that. I thought, I hope you don't think I've got a his boat. Yeah, he came down with his wife, and uh, yeah, we're, we're friends anyway. Been friends because Stuart comes to a lot of gigs and yeah, it's a forty foot motor cruiser. Yeah, I'm lucky; it's got you know cut the bedrooms on it and uh, a lounge and telly and you know whatever and no tennis courts or nothing like that but you know uh me and my wife love doing what we do we come out on it um you know my wife's got a successful business and uh you know, I've been very fortunate in the music business as well. So um yeah, yeah, I've been very lucky, very blessed and very lucky.
0: I'd love to know when you first discovered Paul's music because your your story is so unique. It'll be great to kind of follow this through. But when when was that first time? I'm guessing it was the jam.
1: It was, yeah, yeah. It was my brother um got me into Nevermind the Bollocks first, the album Nevermind the Bollocks, obviously around the pistols, time the Strangers. In fact i probably got into the Strangers just on the cusp of uh when they released Peaches, uh, I was always a big music fan. And, um, and I clearly remember, you know, I remember the spring of 76. I'm 55 now. I'm coming 56. Um, I clearly remember the spring of, um, of 76. And I remember, the, uh, I remember the punk revolution exploding. You know, I remember it happening. I remember the Bill Grundy interviews. I remember, because uh, I was, I guess like a lot of younger people in those days, a lot of younger people were more into music, it seemed. It seemed they were into, into music very early on and um, were very aware. There was a lot of awareness going on because... You know, music, there was a lot of records around, you know, I got first into the Beatles. And then, you know, and I was a big music fan anyway. I loved music. And, um, you know, to so try and plinkle on pianos and pick up acoustic guitars and not, you know, make a bit of a row. Anyway, my brother got me into Nevermind the Bollocks. And like me and hundreds of thousands of others, you know, my world sort of uh, opened up really. And then, of course, the jam came along. And I remember seeing uh, In The City album turned up. Uh, at the house, and I thought, I'd just love to sleep. And then I went to see them down at Portsmouth, Lucano in black and white suits. It was an old little club down in Pompey. And then, you know, through that, progressed through and saw the Jam. I, I You know, I've always... I, I'm forgetting how many times I'd seen the band, but I'd always claimed it was around 30-odd times, and I think it must have been something like that. You know, wow. no idea, really. And then uh, I saw the band you know, coming right the way through. And I met the band quite a few times throughout that period, you know, nineteen eighty. I remember having a really good conversation with Paul and Bruce in nineteen eighty. Uh, spring of eighty two, uh, the gift came out and um, and we went got in the sound check. Like we did, and then I, I went back to the hotel and bumped into Paul and he said, look, I'm, I'm not making anything, you know, it's not my... You know, they ain't my ideas. He said, he went, wait there a minute, and he shot up to his room. He went, who's that? And he bought, gave me four black and white photographs. I've still got them Yeah, I said, it's you. He said, no, it's Stevie Marry. It's the Small Faces on the Ready, Steady, Go show. And he went, where do you think I get it from? And I clearly remember that, you know, and Paul had... Just prior to that, he'd had the Toadler own haircut and, uh, you know, the white Levi and the Paisley shirts. And uh, and he just, he, he, you know, him and Marriott looked identical. To, and then, of course, when I was with him that afternoon, he'd gone, a couple of days before, he'd gone and had a complete skinhead, much to the surprise of a load of the big weather fans, you know, the look alike. You know, and then he said, look, do you want to lift down to soundcheck? So he went on the coach down to soundcheck. Anyway, so, you yeah, know, and then... Paul's music was always around me, you know, and of course, and they split up and then, uh, you know, and I was always into what Paul's solo stuff was all about. And um, Paul's music's, um, you know, been a part of my life, uh, like many, many other people in the country or around the world, really.
0: You mentioned about those albums and kind of how much, I mean, five five years to see them 30 times. I'm trying to do the maths. (laughs) That's an awful lot of gigs every year.
1: It is, isn't it? Especially when you're that age, you know, yeah. I was, yeah. I started going when I was, I think I was 12 or 13 when I started to go, you know, some of the tickets were £2.75 and that, you know, you know, I, I was there when they did like the, in the old days when they did the A-bomb explosion and the, the place just completely almost blew up, you know, and it was in pyrotechnics, they were allowed to do it, you know, in those days proper pyrotechnics, and, uh, you know, it had come to the end, A, B, O, C, A, O, Y, B, S, E, Apocalypse, and it just went boom. The place shook like like you've ne- you've ne- I've never experienced anything like it. It was like a proper, you know, proper bomb going off. It was great. But, of course, in those days, you know, and many a jam fan will agree, you know, they, they, the jam was about three people in the band. Of course, Paul was one of the best front men we've ever had. He, he's a great front man. Full of attitude, full of everything like that. But when they come out, they used to run out on stage. That was the exciting thing about it. You know, they came running out and it, it would be Paul, Bruce and Rick, you know. And it was exciting. And Bruce was flying around the stage. Rick was Rick. You know, Funny, enough, you know, Rick's, um, I, I had a good relationship with them all actually over the years, you know, and, um, and particularly with Bruce because I've been with Bruce, working with Bruce, and I've been dear close friends for many years, you know. And uh, and I forget he's Bruce Foxton from The Jam, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Which is a good thing because yeah. I think yeah. you can't have a friendship based on thinking, oh fucking hell, that's Bruce Foxton from The Jam, <laughs> somebody that you you know used to adorn your walls. You can't have that. It, you can't be. You can't speak to them openly. So it's better that you have. Me and Bruce have got an, a, a, a very rare relationship it's a very you know we can read each other's minds i can speak on his behalf and likewise you know and i totally understand the uh the personalities of the band and i totally understand why the band split up all those things really having known everybody within i get it uh, you know i really get it i get paul i get bruce and i get rick you know not complicated people very straightforward
0: they're a good laugh it's a lovely way you put it in terms of this kind of you know you as a as a kind of teenager. The big announcement, you know, and I'm guessing it was um, John Weller. Put your hands together, the best brain in the fucking world, the And then these three guys kind of running out. That yeah, is, excitement must have been incredible.
1: Through the roof, you know, it really was. And, and what's more, I used to say to Bruce, I remember when you'd all go, it's not like today we got soaked with the media. Everybody's by very instantaneous gratification today. You know, everyone wants to know, right, where did they go when they left the stage? You know, when they used to leave the stage, that was it. You know, until you saw them on telly again or something like that, maybe on, you know, on the Chris Tarrant show or something like on Tiz was, you know, maybe six months down the line. You just, you didn't know where they went. You know, the, the magic was still there. Mm. Whereas today, everybody wants this instant gratification of seeing and getting a, a reply from somebody. You know, people get pissed off if they, you know, might say say something on Twitter and you don't respond to it. You know what I mean? And, and then they want that. And I, I I just, I loved that joyous moment. You know, they'd leave the stage and it was like some magical thing had happened and then they'd gone. Do you know what I mean? An hour, hour and 20 minutes and then there they were. They went off into the night. Bang. I spent many a time asking Rick and Bruce, so where did you go after so-and-so? You know, what did you do after the night at Brighton? What happened? And all those things, you know, so I found out, you know, it wasn't so much
0: of a mystery, you yeah. <laughs> We went home.
1: We, we went home,
0: yeah. Yeah. Right. We went home. But like you say, I imagine there was a period where you kind of had all those questions that you, you get out of your system. Um, You, you first know Rick and um, Bruce oh, and Miss Paul. Yeah. Um, the thing that I think is so fascinating and so unique is that there are only two people in the world who have sung these songs to huge crowds Um, over a decent period of time. And there's Paul Weller, And there's you. You're there on stage and you're touring the world, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, UK, etc. And you're singing these songs to to massive audiences. That must be so exciting.
1: It's an absolute thrill and a joy. And, you know, how lucky am I? You know, I must point out that I sing them from my perspective, which is great, you know, because it would be dishonourable and it would be crass and tacky if I someone from Paul's perspective if, if you see what I mean
0: you're not a Paul Weller impressionist this is yeah. not you you're not being Paul on stage
1: no I, that's right uh, Paul leaves the building early in the morning if you know, he, well, he never invo- you know he's never in the building but so he leaves the building so you know I understand those songs. I understand, um you know, to the best of my ability, anyway. You know, and I understand the joy that they gave people because they still give me that joy. So, to give you an idea, to come out on stage in Sydney to eighteen hundred people, like at the Barrowlands, and the place is just completely bouncing, and they welcome you with open arms because I'm no longer the new boy. You know, you know. At first, it's pretty intimidating. Um, but to go down, to be on Bondi Beach uh, in the daytime with the crew, with Rick and Bruce, and then go to the gig at night and play the gig, and in New York, and in Newcastle, and in London, the Shepherds Bush Empire, all the forum, all those places. What's it like? You know, it's weird because you think I'd get asked that question all the time, and I don't. Whether people want to ask it, I don't know. But it is a good question because um, it's brilliant, and, um, but it has to be done with a lot of respect. Because they're not my songs, you know, when I'm not singing the ones that, off that me and Bruce have written. So, uh, you know, and, and Paul wrote them. Um, they do, and I think a lot of people and a lot of fans would understand it for the jams and Paul's solo career and et cetera, that they, they tend to belong to the hearts of the fans, really. You know, it's like the Beatles songs, you know, they tend to belong to people. Along to people's hearts anyway because they certainly stir that just looking back thinking of people that you know seeing people in tears and I've seen it you know singing songs and then look up and then seeing them in floods of tears and thinking wonder what's happened down there then you know <laughs> but not knowing that it's what we're doing that's um, incited that you know and I, I guess that's a brilliant thing that it's moved somebody that much you know and I, I've had the hairs on the back of my neck go up and it still happens today you know it doesn't happen all the time but I'll get a moment when it's really happening on stage and it's really in the moment there's no nothing contrived about it at all it's really you know it, it is what it is in that second and, and and it's bouncing up and down and I think pretty special this and Bruce comes off stage he got you know many many times he's gone to me it was never that big in the in the old days. he's gone it was never that exciting then he said, it's just such a thrill. He said, he'll come off and go, it is a joy to be on stage with you guys. And we'll say the same with, with Bruce and with Mikey and with Andy, you know, because obviously Rick left in, in 2009. Rick decided that he, he just wanted to hang up his sticks and, and not play anymore. So that, that's fair enough. But it, it was a real, uh, it's a real joy. And it's, um, you know, long may it continue. I say that all the time because we never really realise how long, I guess, You know, it would go on for, and 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 Bruce says that, and and Paul says that about the jam. They didn't know how long it had gone for. You know, Bruce, uh, Steve, and Rick were, you know, around in 72 stroke 73, you know, and then Bruce came along in 74. And then, you know, I said to Bruce the other day, it was only last week, I went, that's nearly 50 years ago, man. (laughs) He went, oh, thanks. You know, it's, it's another lifetime ago. It really is have a lot he goes was I in that band <laughs>
0: <laughs> the fact you guys have been touring for 13 years is from the jam I think the gifts like you said yeah. when you were Rick was, was a, yeah. a couple of years yeah. before that so this yeah. is like 15 years of your life like you said earlier it's really important to note, to look at the jam through the through the lens of the three guys this isn't just Paul Weller this was Rick and Bruce and Paul and it must be incredible to, to kind of be standing next to Bruce when he's playing and those mistake unmistakable bass riffs of Town Called Malice and Tube Station and stuff yeah. it's unique He's totally is it- unique like,
1: absolutely. It's like um it's like here you go, this is how it is. Bruce doubts himself, Rick doubted himself, and Paul doubts himself. That makes them human. That's I like that. That makes them non-bulletproof. I remember playing some stuff to Paul. Paul played piano on a, a song, a song that I wrote called Number Six, and I played on played piano, played quite a bit of guitar on some different songs. And we were sitting down at the at the piano with I'm sitting with a guitar next to Paul and Paul's playing the piano and he goes, you know, is that okay? And, you know, he's asking me correctly because is it okay? You know, it's like, well, I'm not going to say, because I'm not one to tell you, Paul, if you push a piano down the stairs, it's great, because if it's shit, I'll tell you it's shit. I ain't one like that. I don't get all that sycophantic stuff, you know. I understand why it happens. I really do. But you've got to look through that because they all hate that. They can't bear it, you know, any of them. And people can't fathom out that sycophantic. uh, They want to say, look, man, don't tell me that because I've pushed that piano down that stairs, it sounds fantastic because it's crap, you know. And we're all capable of coming up with some some rubbish. And I like that about Paul. I like that about Bruce. And I like that about Rick. And I like that about musicians that second-guess themselves. I I guess anybody with any – most of the greats all do that you know I've met any of them that have come in and gone that's amazing get that down <laughs> and, you know it's not like that you know every, I, I remember Paul thinking you know if, it, if it's not right let's let's just take it out you know because Paul's a really quick worker he, he puts stuff down and uh, if it works he, he you know it, it works and he did some reverse guitaring on a, on a track called window shopping which I wrote back in I don't know 2011 or something like that it was great you know I walked in the studio and he'd already done that part of the guitar and he said that I played it back to me and he said "Well." thing and I'll think oh it's fucking great and he went really? I went no yeah really it's great because I I wouldn't say it's great if it wasn't you know because he's given you the opportunity to say well look if it doesn't work you know well just take it out and, uh, like, he played glockenspiel as well. And, you know, but he's pretty multi-talented, Paul. And uh, he just throws everything at it, you know. And he's very quick because he's he's very used to the studio. And like, you know, somebody else, I think it was Mick Talbot said a little while ago, he doesn't suffer from red light fever either because he's so used to it in there. Whereas we all can, you know. You, you get all of a sudden, you know, you're playing, like, you go, right, I'll do a take. And then the light comes on, you know, Mike live. And it's like, oh, you get red light fever. They're all um, they're all human beings, and it's great. You know, it's just it's it, just normal human beings. And of course, you know, Paul's Paul. When Paul's in a room, you know he's in a room. You know, and it was lovely to see. When I was recording, I, I had some headphones on doing a guitar track, and um, I had to, Paul was with Bruce chatting. I could see him, and they were laughing together. And I had the cans on. I'm in the same room, you know, at the control desk. And then I sit to... And then Paul had gone out to make the tea, funnily enough, for all of us. And he was and shouting, through George sugar and all that, you know. I said, what are you laughing at? He went, um, Paul's actually commenting on how much you remind, him, he, you remind him of Steve Brooks. I went, oh, really? I went, oh, that's quite an honour. Because I like Steve. Steve's a really nice guy. I see Steve a couple of times a year in my area. And... Uh, He's a lovely guy, you know. I, I, I think um, if you're an arsehole in this business, you get fathomed out really quick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast series. Yeah,
1: you don't <laughs> ask you. No, no one wants to talk to you. The phone doesn't ring, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I hear allegedly.
0: <laughs> Apparently. That's, my phone yeah. hasn't rung for ages, yeah. yeah. One thing that's really interesting around the, the From the Jam stuff, I think, is how the audience has come with you. So, you were performing the 40th anniversary of Setting Suns back in March, which I think was the last time yeah. you were performing live. So
1: Lemon and Spa was the last night. Yeah, we played. Right. Yeah.
0: And you were doing those you know, those amazing songs, you know, Girl on the Phone and Saturday's Kids and Private Hell yeah. all, all those great tracks. But the fans have kind of come with you to kind of, I, I was going to say, allow you to, and I, but I think that's wrong, but it's kind of, they're on board with you to write material and kind of um produce your your new stuff and bring that into yeah. that kind of forum as well. So you and Bruce are on to album number 3 which will be out next year. I think that's really interesting and really exciting. They're kind of with you on this journey and, and supporting you on that too.
1: Very much so. Yeah, it's been uh, of course it's always doubtful when you you know cuz you come out with a new track and say, you think oh no they want they want to wear in the city. Oh no, they want to wear tube station, you know, and I understand that. That's what they're there for. But I guess the reason that Paul split the band up was because he got sick of all that. He got sick of people going, you know, not liking what he was doing in that modern, current stuff, you know. And they were all shouting, away from the numbers, you know. It was like, look, man, that was years ago. Today, this is what it is today, you know. It might have been precious and all that. You know, because I remember going to the Michael Sobel Centre back in 81 and seeing them play, when Banana Rama did their first gig with them and uh, the questions were playing with them. And I remember the whole been dead silent you know paul go here's another new one <laughs> and he played like precious and then uh, people were like looking at a few nods and that and then it went dead silent which was something that you never had because i think what had happened that the, the album hadn't been out at all so they were playing songs that no one had heard so they were playing like six or seven new tracks which is always a killer if you're going to go and do that, you know, bring yourself a good shovel, you know, because you better start digging. Because I I, I don't really get that, you know, it's... It, it it's okay to put a few new tracks in and then, you know, give everybody what they want to hear. People have been very good to us and people have, have likened it. I, I suppose if they didn't like the music, they wouldn't be that keen to hear it. And uh, and I know by the sales of the albums as well, the, the sales were very good on the last two, Back in the Room and Smash the Clock. And uh, and I think because we were very proud of them and also very, you know, they were, they were good songs, good little options, you know, which is, you know, at the end of the day, that's, That's all they are, you know. It's not like I've come up with, um, you know, the theory of uh, relativity or anything like that. You know, they're just pop songs. And uh, people do get their old knickers in a twist over funny little things, don't they? You know, and everybody's got an opinion. That's the thing. It's They've all got, you know, Twitter, an instant opinion. You know, it's like, you know, if I (laughs) I just, it makes me laugh, you know. It's like, it's, it's just so weird. You know, everybody's just got an opinion about something. And I know everybody's got one, but, does it mean we want to hear it?
0: Now, you say that about the kind of um, instant gratification. It must be nice when you kind of put out your new demos. Um, so the butterfly effect is that is going to be the new album next year. I guess there's an element where lockdown has helped you to kind of, because you're always touring, you're always gigging. I'm guessing you don't get time yep. or much time to be able to kind of get into a studio. So you've kind of produced this work. You put some demos out on Twitter and the, the feedback has gone like crazy for this stuff. Yeah,
1: it's been really good. It's been, it's been great. There's a great track called Lula. Um, there's another. Song, there's a lot of songs that haven't been heard yet around. now are going to be heard over a period of time. There's a song called "Wanted," which is really good. And um, "Revolver '66" is a track that's going to come around soon. That's on the album. They're not conscious efforts, apart from conscious efforts to write a good song and to have a great melody in it. That's, mm. that's all they are, and, and some pretty good lyrics in it. You know, I was talking to the producer last night, which was about how you know how we're going to go about recording some stuff in January, more stuff in January and February time. And, uh, yeah, just looking forward to it. Oddly enough, this producer was, uh, in 78, he was on monitors
0: for the jam. The other albums you recorded at Black Barn, and there was the kind of Paul Weller link there with, like you say, him con- con- um, contributing yeah. to a couple of the tracks. This time round, you kind of double booked. So you, you tried to get into Black Barn. He's already in there recording yeah. the album for next year.
1: Yeah, Paul's in there at the moment as well. So, uh you know, and I guess don't blame him because what else are you going to do when you can't go on the road? You know, if that's what you do for a living and you tour and you write. Paul's studio is great. It's uh, it's very homely. It's, it's great. Paul's house is next door, one of his houses. It's a very nice place to be. Um, but yeah, it, it was chock-a-block. So um, we've gone into another studio down in Brighton. Yeah, we're just looking forward to getting back in and getting right stuck into it. You know, that's what we want to do. Once you get into it, you end up, um, I said to Bruce, we need to get our head down so that then once we pop our head out of the the rabbit hole, you know, we'll have a vaccine and then we'll be back touring live. So, you know, we said we were due to be in, I think we were due to be in Australia January down in ours and then we can be here through September period you know which i want to be back in the uk because we've just spent so much time uh, twiddling our thumbs this year you know it's been 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 tough as we touched on at the beginning
0: do you know when you can get out on the road aren't you doing some kind of socially distance gigs is that still? You know, well, we've
1: got, yeah we've got um three we've got boysdale in london at canary wharf on the 17th and then we've got two nights in brighton and they're all socially distanced uh, ones it took brighton ones are in a big church and they're oh. at bubble tables and you know and I think it's, uh, it's going to be, you know, sat down. Me and Bruce will be sat down acoustically playing and uh, we'll probably play a couple of tracks off the new album, something like that, and, uh, and then play some, some classics. Brighton's traditionally always the last two nights or three nights for us. And our fans have followed us around. And last year we played Lon- the London show was just before that, and that was at Indigo, which, you know, three and a half thousand people to sell out the Indigo is no mean feat. You know, it's, there's a lot of uh, current bands that can't do that as Bruce points out as well and uh, I think there's a lot of people that, that can't do that but yeah three and a half thousand cap in there in the Indigo a great venue I, I personally like Shepherds Bush Empire it's my favourite one of my favourite venues because it's the way you're you, you visually from the stage you know you look up and it all sort of goes up in tears you know. but yeah missed it missed being on the road in the winter I've not, I've not had a winter for nearly 20 years um where I've not been on the road so and the it's dark don't you experience it dark nights I never knew what dark nights (laughs) were at home I'm looking it's half past six at night and I'm thinking it must be bedtime
0: the rest of us have that that's our winter for the rest of us of yeah. our lives
1: well we come out a sound check usually it's dark so we don't even pay any attention to that and you know and then usually we're touring right the way through to about january the 30th something like that usually and then we have a month off in february we go on holiday and then we start early march usually which i would imagine that come the springtime it'll be a different place you know once i can vaccinate all the the vulnerable people then all the death rates will drop and uh, all serious cases and then the, and then confidence needs to come back to within the music business you know it, it's okay people saying oh we'll, we'll have a you know uh, a festival or a load of gigs are planned for may well the promoter's the one who's put his neck on the line so he's got to know that today he's got to be confident of that today otherwise he's going to lose a shed load of money so a lot of them are saying that let's just put it towards the end of the year you know that's where it's at so you know there's been a lot of people that have financially crippled this year and and some of the big people as well some of the big people that you don't expect some of the big high earners you know because they've got high x's as well it's just devastating
0: two final questions for you russell And this has been such a joy so thank you so much for your time i, I really appreciate it question number one you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life and, and and this might be something that perhaps this is the one you're allowed to perform live so it'd be nice to know what you kind of really get a kick out of and, and presumably that changes tour by tour what would it be right now?
1: Changes all the time it, it really does you know Strange Town and To Be Someone were, are up there for me purely because uh yeah distant memories my own personal relationships with those songs and then secondly to see what it evokes in other people, you know, what Strangetown does to other people. And then, of course, I'm going to go on to going underground. I was at school. I remember just just prior to leaving school, going underground, It coming on the the, the lunchtime charts show that they'd gone in straight in at number one. And I remember that really well. And I remember Paul writing to me when I was 15 as well, writing a letter to me. <laughs> Not not out of the blue. (laughs) I'd written to him first. Yeah, I got a a handwritten, nice big handwritten letter back. You know, uh, it was lovely, and uh, again, it made him more human. So anyway, uh, yeah, strange town uh, to be someone and going underground, and you know I could go on. You know, Paul's solo career, Wild Woods, my ever-changing moods, lovely song. Um, you know, I love that because uh, music is lovely. And what a song that I've talked to Paul about, which I, as a musician, I've spoken to, and I said, you know, where did you come up with this uh, of Head Start for Happiness? oh i love that, song. It's love that. a pure we talked about it you know i said you know those chord, that chord structure that you played there it's just out of this world it's the rundown on it is a um, is mental and i guess that's pulled some um, pure talent on that you know pure nuts and bolts talent you know that that stuff is because I said you know it's just lovely when you look at how yeah how it's written it's just—I think it's one of the you know most beautifully written songs he's ever done.
0: Yeah, there was a version he's done of that on um, when he did the solo acoustics or the Days of Speed album, which is just—I sure. yeah, love the count song, but that that al- that version of that's beautiful as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, is the letter approach something you think would still work? <laughs> to <laughs> a handwritten letter?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I was—we <laughs> were all in the studio there one day, and uh, what had happened? The record company had uh, had asked. Paul and Bruce to sign a load of stuff because we were there recording some stuff, and Paul had to come in and sign this stuff. And um, and and I think it was just it was it was about two years ago, something like that. Paul was signing it. He said to Bruce, he just looked up from this wad of albums and CDs and stuff. And and when you go to there's always stuff that's sent to the studio, right? That's sent down there for Paul to sign, right? It queues up. You know, a lot of it goes, you know, amiss, you know, Gabba's cobwebs and people don't know where it's gone, you know, but I guess that's the danger of sending it there, you know, with Paul Weller's studio, you know, Surrey. And he said to him out to Bruce and went, oh, I don't know about you, mate. He said, but I am fucked off with all this signing. <laughs> and it just made me laugh. It just made, again, it made, he said, but, and then I went, oh, not a good time to ask you this then. <laughs> Somebody made this lovely, beautiful black and white stall with the jam written on it. And he said, No, no, it's fine. I'll sign it. So he signed it, Bruce signed it, Rick signed it, all three of them signed it. It went off for charity auction. And then Paul said, Oh, can you get me one of those? I went, Yeah, yeah, sure. No worries. And they, they, I got the manufacturer oh, to, wow. to send one to Paul, which was great. We delivered it. But yeah, you know, if you want to write a handwritten written <laughs> letter to them, you know, you probably get a handwritten
0: let her back you know oh, I have to give that a go give that a go so final question Russell obviously as you know the, the kind of end culmination of the podcast is is that dream interview for me with Paul is there a question that you would like to see answered or something you think I should approach with him what, what kind of things get the conversation going
1: Paul likes talking about things like uh, a lot of the time that probably aren't to do with the music business and we got talking about what were our memories of childhood did we imagine that the summers were beautiful in the old days or was it a romantically imagined that's what we 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 were trying to work out and i'll tell you why because i was recording a song called senses of summer that i wrote back in 2011 it's the last song on uh back in the room and it had all this sort of pictorial imagery of uh uh, aerobanes going over through the summer lawn mowers going you know people washing their cars on a sunday on a lovely sunny spring summer's day and uh and we got talking about oh you know summers were great in those days he went ah oh, but was it was it just our romantic ideology of it or was it was it always pissing with rain because he said <laughs> when I was down at that caravan down in Br- Bracklesham which is only about two a mile from where I am now where Eaton Rifles was written, he said it used to piss down with rain all the time <laughs> just made me laugh you know that, you know senses of summer which was uh I guess was it was it my idea you know it's like You think I used to get on with the girlfriend back then, but no, no, I used to row like anything with her. (laughs) Forget about the bad things, you know, and uh, talk about anything really, anything. It's nice when I've enjoyed this because it's been nice chat and it's been proper questions, you know. Oh, bless you! I think um, (laughs) proper questions, you know. I I like that, you know. We've put the phone down before. (laughs) Now, they obviously haven't done their own work. One, what my background is, you know, and they've asked me some questions that I thought, you really haven't got to done any homework on me at all, have you? You know, put the phone down, it's just pointless. Yeah. You know, but yeah. you've obviously done, which is nice.
0: Oh, well, bless you, Russell. I've thing. loved every second of this, so thank you so much for your, for your time. Good luck with the uh, with the new album when it comes out next year. Are we Are talking September <laughs> time, is that right?
1: Yeah, September time. You can uh, pre-order it from uh, Townsend Music, which is great. You can get to pre-order that and a load of other lovely things as well.
0: Cool. Brilliant. Well, good luck with that. Good luck when the world opens up to gigging again. Uh, look forward to seeing you live next year and, and and good luck on the boat.
1: Thanks, Dan. Appreciate
0: that. Nice one. Oh, I love that so much. What a great chat and what a lovely guy. As we go live with this podcast on the 15th of December, 2020, Russell Hastings and Bruce Foxton are due to play live this very week with some socially distanced, up-close and personal gigs before From the Jam head back on tour next year across the UK. Details on the websites fromthejamofficial.com, or russellhastings.com. Next week, we head back to the 90s, to the height of Britpop and the man in control of Paul Weller's return to live performance on primetime TV. Rick Blacksell joins us, the former exec producer on Top of the Pops. Don't forget to download the podcast, subscribe, review, and give us a retweet. Help to spread the word, at WellerFanPod on Twitter. I'll see you next week.